0: Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law & Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. We have a special episode for you, which closes out our series on totalitarianism and ideology. I'm pleased to bring you this discussion on the theme of art and totalitarianism with four of my previous guests on the podcast, Claire Cavanaugh, Jacob Howland, Perry Link, and Jim Pontuso. It's a fascinating discussion among a very distinguished group of scholars. Next in Enduring Interest, we take up the theme of education, liberal education in particular. We'll be releasing a series of episodes on this theme over the next few months. My guests and topics include Michael and Catherine Zuckert on two essays by Leo Strauss, Rita Koganzen on two essays by Hannah Arendt, and Elizabeth Corey on Michael Oakeshott's collection called The Voice of Liberal Learning. More information about other episodes in this series will be forthcoming very soon please remember to message us on Twitter. Our handle is at the EIPod. There you can suggest topics, books, and guests for the podcast. Now, let me introduce our four guests for this discussion. Claire Kavanaugh is Francis Hooper Professor in Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University. She's a prize-winning translator of Polish poetry. She's the author of Lyric Poetry and Modern Politics, Russia, Poland, and the West, and is currently at work on an authorized biography of Cheswav Miłosz. Jacob Howland is McFarland Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at the University of Tulsa, where he taught from 1988 to 2020. He's the author of many books, including most recently Glaucon's Fate, History, Myth, and Character in Plato's Republic. And his recent essays have engaged the subject of totalitarianism through authors like Vasily Grossman and Yevgeny Zamyatin. Perry Link is chancellorial chair for teaching across disciplines at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author author of An Anatomy of Chinese Rhythm Metaphor Politics. And he co-edited a volume called No Enemies, No Hatred, a collection of essays and poems by the great Chinese dissident, Liu Xiaobo. And now he has co-authored a forthcoming biography of Liu Xiaobo. Last but not least, we've got James Pontusso, Uh, who's the Charles Patterson Professor of Government at Hampton-Sydney College. His latest book is called Nature's Virtue, and he also published a book in 2004 called Václav Havel, Civic Responsibility in the Postmodern Age. We'll spend the first part of our discussion looking at the relationship uh, between art and totalitarianism from the perspectives of the states that sought to control artistic inquiry. And then in the second part, we'll, we'll flip that around and look at the relation from the perspective of the artists and how they sought to evade artistic control. So Claire, let's, let's start with you. Um, the initial question I have is why do totalitarian regimes and why did the totalitarian regimes of the past seek to control uh, all forms of art? And how should we understand the motivations of this uh, pretty grand, pretty, um, pretty grand enterprise?
1: Well, I have one image I'll use to start out the discussion because what I'm going to be trying to do here is look not just at what happened in the part of the world that I work on and specifically in the Soviet Union, which was the nexus for this kind of development of uh, mandatory artistic programs. But also the way that that the relationship between totalitarianism and art has been reevaluated since the end of the the Eastern Bloc in 1889 and 1889 I wish 1989 and the Soviet Union in 1991. So I'll be trying to deal with it kind of as a double-pronged issue here. And so this is the, okay, what these are two pictures by the artists Komar and Melamed that uh, who surfaced in the 1980s under Gorbachev and um, 1990s who were deconstructing essentially socialist realism and totalitarianism under Stalin specifically where it reached sort of its apex in Soviet history. So what you have here is the muses bringing their lovely book to a genial Stalin. Of course, they're a few inches down and lightly garbed, and they're also very clearly classical. So what this points to partly is the classical antecedents of the idea of art and the state, um, which was very much on the minds of uh, Soviet leadership. And then here we have another very uh, lightly clad Botticellian lady who's the muse, both posing Stalin, who's got his hand around her back, and noting down her profile there. Um, what I wanted to use this to call attention to, um, let me stop my screen sharing. Okay, so I'll, I'll try and be quick about this. Uh, the idea of totalitarianism and art is very, very general. And the fact is, the case studies are infinitely specific, both because the regimes had changing needs and because the artists themselves had changing expectations for the relationship to the state. Um, back in 1990, and again, I'll try and keep this brief. Uh, uh, formerly Soviet emigre art historian Igor golomstok who'd been trained as an art historian in the Soviet Union, discovered by accident a trove of. Hitler pictures in the, I think, the Tretikov Gallery in Moscow, and noticed that they were almost the prototypes of the, that that they were almost indistinguishable. And what he claims to have done, in hindsight, it seems implausible, is to have shown one of his classes a portrait of Hitler and asked who it was, and they all said Stalin, because the iconography was identical. To use a and there's truth in it. There's truth in it, but it's a very partial truth. And I'm going to turn to one other revisionary source on the relationship between totalitarianism and art that, that Flag and I've discussed earlier is Chesov Mosh in his classic The Captive Mind, 1951, published in English in 1953. What he argues for kind of, he works out the argument in the process of writing the book, it's just for increasing particularity. Because the flip side to this question is not simply why does the state want to control the arts, but why do want artists want to participate in this? It's from more general to more specific arguments as the book progresses, and ends up with intimate detailed biographies of friends and also a thread running throughout it is his own uh, biographical impetus for participating in the state and I'll just give a few very brief ideas of why, in Russia specifically, this idea of absolute control over the arts would have evolved in the first place. The um, the idea of the romantic artist, the romantic poet who speaks for the nation, was extremely potent in Russia in a way that it never would have been in Great Britain, for example. Um, they took it seriously, and as Mandelstam was it Mandelstam, the poet who died, the great. Russian Jewish poet who died in 1938 in a transit camp on the way to the Gulag, he said in Russia, nowhere do they respect poets more than they do in Russia. Uh, They kill more poets here than anywhere else. There are advantages to being less respected. But this is the prototype um, that goes back to the beginning part of the 19th century. It's extremely potent. And what that means is that the state fears poets and also wants to recruit them. Fears artists, but also wants to recruit them. Pushkin, Alexander Pushkin, uh, ended up being under the personal censorship of the Tsar in the last years of his life. This intimate relationship between leader and artist on the one hand and the desire that goes back in both Russia and Poland to the 19th century if we're going to speak for the masses, speak for the millions. This is something the great Polish poet Adam Mickiewicz says explicitly in one of his romantic dramas is I am speaking for the millions, I am the czar, I am the devil, I am speaking for everyone. You know That pretty much covers the whole spectrum of good and evil as far as a pole in the 19th century goes. So. Milos tries to differentiate that and says not just why does a state want to recruit writers and artists, it's what now is called soft power, um, but also why writers want to participate in what is in many ways a romantic project. Um, Isaiah Berlin talks about Marx's profound attachment to the great German romantic poets. Joseph Stalin began his career both as a poet and as a seminarian. So the theology and poetry which were linked from romanticism so intimately on. And I'll just conclude with one example here. I, I have more, but I'm sure these things will come up in discussion. Um, Maxime Gorty, the proletarian writer, began absolutely humble beginnings, began writing what was later termed socialist realist prose. Um, in the late 19th century, befriended Tolstoy and Chekhov, so intimately tied to the the, uh, 19th, the tradition of great 19th century realists. But he's got the proletarian roots, and he's got the revolutionary street credentials. What happens? Well, he leaves as soon as the Bolsheviks come to power, because he's revolted by the, the um, tactics that have gone on already, mass imprisonments, incarcerations, um, executions and so forth even in the very earliest years of the revolution comes back at the request of Joseph Stalin after Stalin has come to power, um, who says you'll be able to do all kinds of things here. And one of the things I'll just mention a couple more ways in which this, this has some uh, bearing on our discussion is why is he asking to come back? He needs the the major glorious proletarian revolutionary writer there to spearhead this new movement, Socialist Realism, which becomes the mandatory um, artistic credo of the state in the early 1930s under Stalin. Why do they need this so much? And what does Gorky end up doing? Well, two things I want to mention here that are very, very specific. We've got this romantic tradition that says art speaks to the masses and the state needs the arts. They need to control them, but they also need to enlist them. Um, You've got a huge illiterate population in Russia. I haven't got the the figures right here. 80 90% of the population is illiterate. What does Lenin do when he comes in? He says, we need to electrify and we need literacy a huge campaign to promote literacy two-edged sword what are you going to have the people reading once they get literate what do you have them reading gorky lenin um lunacharsky trotsky all involved in a project called the classics of world literature we're going to translate all of world literature into russian carefully selected And we put Gorky at the head of the Institute in 1932, so we can start getting them to read the right kinds of books and understand them in the right kind of way. So the problem of literacy is key to this artistic control. Um, And the classics of world literature are where you get the prototypes by guided reading. You read some of these Soviet era prefaces, they're unbelievable. How you get people to read Tolstoy the aristocrat as the prototypical revolutionary. How do you edit Dostoevsky? Well, one thing you do is you leave the possessed out of the canon. In Back in the 70s, when I was doing study abroad in the Soviet Union um, under Brezhnev, man, um, you couldn't get a copy of that book for lover money. You make sure that other editions are printed only in very small, what were called tirages. All the, the entire publishing mechanism is controlled by the state in editions that are tiny. And some things, I still have my 1970s Anna Akhmatova, um, are available only for hard currency in state-run stores. The the actual Soviet citizens can't get them. And you can see how Akhmatova has been edited into the ground so that even when she's being bought for foreign consumption, um, the whole text is read in a certain way. And there is a teleological thing explaining how she was a relic of the old bourgeois family. And um, we still love her and cherish her. Um, She got some things right sometimes along the way. And her praise poems to Stalin make it in and out of various editions. So the relationship is infinitely complex and highly, highly personal. Gorky ends up rebelling against the state after making the first official pronouncements on socialist realism, dies in 1936. and the circumstances of his death remain unclear to this day.
0: So maybe I'll I'll stop you there Claire. One, one thing that I guess I would highlight from that from that great um discussion for this question is on the one hand we have this ambition of the totalitarian regimes to be engineers of of souls in the in the phrase of Stalin. On the other hand you have um, some authors who are eager to participate uh in that in that project. And so the um, individuals show themselves to be willing uh, participants um, in this in this totalitarian project. Um, Jacob Perry and and uh, Jim, you guys want to jump in on this on this question that has been introduced by Claire?
2: Jake, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, there are a lot of rich things in what Claire said. Uh, you know, this reminds me of the discussion in. Um, the Republic of Plato, or the question of poetry comes up, right? And uh, the real issue is what is poetry for? What is art for? Right? And um, I think the problem with poetry from the point of view of Plato, if I may sort of say in a kind of summary way, is that poetry speaks the truth, whereas um, that's, not, that's not what the state wants poetry to do. It, it wants to mold the souls or stamp or Tune or die them, they're all these kind of technical images like Stalin's Engineers of Souls um, to form them into the kind of citizens that they want. And when it comes to poets who are eager to participate in this, right, or artists, uh, or whatever, uh, you know, my guess is that they have what you might call a sort of modern conception of, of both the work of art and also the nature of truth. That is, you know. At, the concern is um, for a kind of effective truth, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, one other thing I might say here is that um, it's not a surprise that you get this kind of neoclassical romantic uh, presentations of Soviet citizens and so forth, because after all, the conception of truth um, in these ideological totalitarian regimes is abstract, right? So, I mean, that of locus of truth these ideological abstractions so the art itself is going to reflect this kind of notion that that's where truth resides not in the particulars of human existence
0: Perry why don't why don't I turn to you and and just ask you briefly how um, how much does the kind of Soviet example that has been uh, described by both Claire and Jacob how, how how applicable is that to the to the Chinese context
3: it's extremely applicable uh, since the 1950s when China borrowed, the Communist Party of China borrowed the Soviet model. But it's important to see that in the Chinese case, there's a deeper layer of it because in traditional Chinese uh, so-called Confucian tradition, the theory of how people form correct behavior is rooted in words. Children memorized the classics in order to have them you seep into their bones, as it were, and have morality and propriety naturally grow. Children, when they memorized the classics and the poems when they're little, didn't have to know what they meant. There was the idea that if you read the words and internalize the words, that will create in you proper behavior. Now, this is a little bit different from what um, Jacob was referring to in the Greek sense of truth. It wasn't truth and falsity so much as proper behavior. So that is, and the Communist Party of China today still uses this when it insists that children recite the right words and even that foreigners in the Confucius Institutes recite the right words in order, in their view, that these natural propriety uh, tendencies will emerge. That is a basis upon which the borrowing of the Soviet model in the 1950s came in. That was different but complementary to what I've just described. This notion from the Soviet Union that uh, control needs to be absolutist. You can't have the tiniest crack of truth come out. Here I will read very briefly, Václav Havel talking about Solzhenitsyn, in the power of the powerless. Why was Solzhenitsyn driven out of his own country? His expulsion was something else, a desperate attempt to plug up the dreadful wellspring of truth, a truth which might cause incalculable transformations in social consciousness and so on. That fear uh, that a tiny wellspring of truth could upset the whole apple cart has been very important in Chinese communist control of thought right to the present day. They have viewed propositions as of three kinds. One is the correct, the zhengqian. one is the incorrect, the bu and the third is propositions that can be determined to be either correct or incorrect as long as you get to the bottom of it. The problem with art, and especially after Mao died, was that poets started writing what was called "menglongshi" foggy poetry that weren't correct and weren't incorrect and were not determinable to be either incorrect. And this drove them up the wall. And this became the main concern for plugging up art ever since the death of Mao. Harry, hmm.
0: um, let me let me ask you um, to to expand upon just the means of, of control. And then Jim, maybe you'd want to weigh in on this too. Um, Claire mentioned in her opening um, that the, the Soviets had a kind of official publishing organ, right? Where they, they reprinted the approved works. Um, obviously, if, if you didn't um, have the correct opinions or, or if you didn't write in the, in the correct school, the socialist realist school, you wouldn't have been allowed to publish at all Um, what are some of the other means that that the states used to try to control artistic expression beyond just kind of managing publication
3: right that's a great question i would say not beyond so much as deeper than uh surface control of the actual publication chinese communist control of thought and literature in particular is psychological. That is, you don't put down lines, you can say this, you can't say that, these words are in, these words are out, and I will take your article out of the newspaper if you get it wrong. All of that is there, but the most important function is to intimidate the writer. Here are the red lines, here are the super sensitive zones, Do you dare to touch them? If you dare to touch them, how much risk are you personally willing to take in terms of your own career, your own salary, your children's education, and all of the physical uh, levers that the regime can use in order to punish you if you don't? But the artistic question, how far do I dare to go in this way or that way, and how direct do I dare to be, is left to the individual so that the key mechanism of censorship becomes self-censorship. And this is not the same across individuals. Here, I'll echo something Claire said. Depending on who you are, what your status is, what kind of writer you are, what kind of political backing you have, you can go farther or less far than someone else. The other main principle in this kind of psychological control is vagueness. They don't tell you, here's the line, Stay on this side and you're okay. Go over there and you're not. They leave it vague on purpose because the vagueness combined with the fear mechanism causes people to censor themselves more than they otherwise would need to if the rules were clear.
0: Hmm. Jim, you want to add anything to the the um, so-called means of repression question?
4: Well, uh, we actually had two discussions going. Uh, One is why people went along with, with the Soviet system. And, and another is why they opposed it. Seems to me that they're different. One of the reasons they went along with it is because it's so optimistic, Marx's uh, point of view, that you'd have you know, full equality, you'd be liberated, you'd be free, and then you'd have this giant community in which everybody loved everybody, really even better than Plato's Republic in some way. Uh, and, that, and that was enticing to a lot of artists, uh, artists uh, of our, our avant-garde. So a lot of them were on the left, and it was appealing to hope that this could come into being. Uh, the first circle, uh, Solzhenitsyn uh, creates a character who's a friend, of, actual friend of his, Ruben, who no matter what Stalin does, he's he's uh, okay with it. Uh, so th- that's why I think a lot of people went along. Now, why they went along after totalitarianism revealed itself, a, a lot of people were afraid. And they they weren't afraid uh, of uh, small things. Uh, They were afraid of being killed because Stalin was a complete maniac. He killed lots of people and he particularly uh, feared people of independent mind, which are uh, poets and writers. Um, After all, the the first thing the communists did was sink Tolstoy's followers on barges in St. Petersburg. Uh, So um, take them out in in the cold weather and and, uh, sink the barge. So I think that uh, uh, there's two reasons for going along and um, it is up to the individual to decide, but I think some people decided to write socialist realism because they they wanted communism. They hoped that the ideals of communism could be realized and others went along because um, they were afraid uh, they were uh, fearful. I think there's also different periods. We can talk about that later. You know, The post-Stalinist area is really, really different. So, I mean, after all, in 1952, they had something called the Night of the Murdered Poets. I looked this up because I had heard about it. And it actually turns out to be a true event. So that probably made a lot of poets think about what they were writing.
0: Claire, did you wanna weigh in?
1: Yeah, I do, actually, because I think this is where I wanted to get into a bit more of the complexity here. It's the, the what the uh, writer Gustav Herling Grudzinski, who wrote a number of works about Stalinism in the camps, was himself in the camps. He went into exile in Italy, and he denounced Captive Mind as saying there were two motivations for participating in the project. They were fear and opportunism, whereas Miwash had gone through these complicated highly individuated reasons in which real writers, not simply um, tools of the state, uh, would be engineers of human souls, implicated themselves in the project. And this is where I think um, I, liked, I liked what Jim said about um, the optimism. It wasn't just an abstract truth. The fact is that Russia was in abysmal state with a huge poverty rate Um, huge infant mortality, incredible anti-Semitism, discrimination against ethnicities, and the state promised to heal all these wounds instantly. Part of the problem here is that the model is they ended up, socialist realism in a way came about because the the real state did not come about. It was based on a sort of Judeo-Christian understanding that the, the world will be transformed, the world will end History was written out of the textbooks during the Civil War. The word itself, because history was now irrelevant, doesn't happen. What do you do? You have to start papering over the cracks really fast and really well. But the underlying motivations of the project meant that people like Mandelstam started out in his autobiography. He talks about his engagement with Marxism. Well, he's the Jewish son of a tradesman who can't get into a university because his grades stink too much. He has to convert to what was called Finnish Methodism to make the quota because he can't make the quota based on his grades. And Finnish Methodism, from what I understand, is the one conversion you could do like in a weekend. So that that was why he did it. Um, He remained deeply ambivalent about the state. And the other thing, all the way through, he he said at 1.28, 29, I offer the revolution gifts for which it has no need. He keeps hoping that somehow he can find a way to channel his uh in, deeply individualistic humanist core into the use of a state that is still figuring out what it wants and the other thing I, I just one other point was with stalin stalin was fascinated with the poets um and there is something deeply seductive i mean killing poets as i said not the best way of showing respect but he didn't kill mandelstrom right away when mandelstrom wrote his little Stalin epigram he sent him into exile and he famously as Nadia Mandelstam tells it called the poet Boris Pasternak to check out the poem had never been written down it was written down only in prison got transmitted through this complex chain of communications that Mandelstam obviously anticipated he he did oral performance of it he knew it would get to Stalin Stalin didn't get the guy killed right away he called Pasternak and said you know, is this guy a master? Is he really a master? And Pasternak kind of hems and haws, you know, what do you say? He says, but I wanted to talk to you about life and death, you know, comrade Stalin. Pasternak also doesn't hang up the phone and say, I'm, I'm a true poet, I'm against you. He tries to set up a conversation and Stalin hangs up. Um, and Mandelstam remained ambivalent. One thing I think that's that's important to keep in mind here is what, he, in a total state, What are your accesses to other realities? Stalin is the power over everything. Stalin is controlling the universe. Mandelstam went on to write an ode in praise of Stalin that has been interpreted in multiple ways. It follows apparently the classical model of an ode to a great leader perfectly. Um, It's been studied from that angle. Is he writing it to save his life? Is it writing it because he has this complex relationship to a leader who, as he notes in his late unpublished poems, has the same name as he does. You know, Joseph Ossip, he makes all kinds of puns. What is this weird dual relationship between poet and state? Akhmatova had a little bit of that too. She was very proud that uh, Stalin had put a microphone in her apartment. Um,
0: yeah, so it's very it's very difficult to kind of tease out yeah, the, the motivations that, that, in lots of these cases that,
1: yeah. that, I think turning it into conformists and dissidents is is to dehumanize these people living through a reality complex in ways we can't right. imagine.
0: um, Perry, you wanted to respond to to something that Claire said.
1: Uh, I have a question for all of
3: my fellow panelists on this question of, uh supporters of the regime because of the ideals and opponents fighting back that jim has highlighted and of course claire has correctly complexified in china though there's a very clear pattern of difference over time because in the late 40s when the communist revolution was winning and the kmt government was so corrupt a lot of writers completely sincerely we're all for the new society and wanted to help and wanted to build it and supported socialism when we're delighted at the idea of writing socialist realism borrowed from the Soviet Union. But then in 1957, Mao Zedong came down with his anti-rightist campaign, which was a, a, a paranoid reflex against anybody who didn't follow him to the T. And then there was a great leap famine that killed 40 million people and the great proletarian cultural revolution arguably the most devastating phenomenon in 20th century china after that the writers re-evaluated and a lot of them decided that they'd been misled from the beginning and up until just recently there was a magazine in china by People who had joined the revolution in the 30s and 40s, and now were writing their reminiscences of how they had been duped their whole lives. Hard to refute because they had such ancient revolutionary credentials, and yet there they were. There's another group of this writers, though, that came through and uh, at the end couldn't give up their original ideals. I mean, it's hard to ask a 70-year-old person to say, look back and admit that your whole life went haywire. So they don't. And they cling to the original Marxist ideals as they understood them. The revolution was right, and it could have been right. And the only reason it wasn't right was because Mao Zedong screwed it up. So you have that kind, but you also have the kind that... uh, denounce their earlier experience and having been misled. So my question for my fellow panelists is, in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, do you see this change over time, where writers later have to come to terms with their mistaken optimism that they started with?
4: Uh, Kundur has a nice comment about that. Um, He said, you know, when I grew up, there was this kind of music uh and uh the f- 1950s music and he and later on that's the music he loves um he said even though stalin was in charge i still love that music you know when you're young and you're optimistic there's a sense in which you believe in things mm-hmm. and then you get mugged by reality and i think that's what happened uh people get mugged by reality and they changed some people as you rightly say don't don't want to change because they they vested so much in uh, the revolution. I have colleagues who always say, but that wasn't communism, Right. Soviet communism, Hungarian communism, Cuban communism, Chinese communism. That wasn't real communism. Yeah. Well, after about six tries, what, what <laughs> is real communism? So that's my answer.
0: Jake, do you want to weigh in on this?
2: Well, um, I would sort of point to a slightly different phenomenon, and that is, you know, take a writer like Vasily Grossman, who in his Masterpiece Life and Fate, you know, and other books like Everything Flows and Stalingrad, um, does a magnificent job of describing um, uh, the sort of depredations of the Soviet state and the crushing weight of the state and what it did to human souls and so forth. But at the same time, you know, he was he was a proud citizen of the Soviet Union, and he was certainly proud of um, what what the Soviets did in the Battle of Stalingrad and in repulsing the attacks of Hitler and so forth. So we have to understand that you know, human life is very complicated, and it, it, somebody like Grossman called the Soviet Union home and would sing the Soviet songs and so forth. Um, It's hard to sort of disaggregate these things, Uh, so I I just—I guess—I want to kind of second Claire's um, suggestion of, you know, ambiguity. Uh, Human beings are very complex creatures, um, and this is where they made their home. You know, I just—I yeah. So I don't really have anything to say about about writers changing their minds later on, Um, but I do think it's important to understand this particular complexity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting with the Grossmont example, I mean, because he was someone who was um, maybe, maybe Claire, you can, you can weigh in on this, this particular question, but he he seems to be someone who was maybe the most, um, I guess, implicated in in the establishment. Gorky, you know, said his early stories were wonderful. I think he was a member of the, of the writers union. He's kind of, he's famous for his dispatches. Um, for the for the newspaper of the Red Army. And I think he's sort of steeped in the thick of the, the Soviet establishment, and then really goes, goes his own way. And that that's, that's, a, that's a pretty interesting example, right? Dif- much different from from the example of Solzhenitsyn.
1: And I get I, I really, I, I exactly agree with Grossman is he's it, it, his, his life work is that project even when he turns away from that project and i think that's somebody i was just thinking of this when when um jacob was talking is svetlana Alexeyevich, who doesn't go through the 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 cataclysm of war or anything but but her book i i was at a meeting with contemporary russian journalists at, at northwestern and one of them asked me because i was the literature person on there is did Alexievich get the prize because she's anti-Russian, you know, since there's still this kind of defensiveness about Russia is the great country, you know, they were laughing at us, they're not laughing anymore since Putin came to power, that kind of, and I said, no, she's not anti-Russian, she's anti-Soviet, and, 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 and also every writer you point to in recent years, Shimborska pissed off Poland, when she got the Nobel Prize, because she hadn't been a member of the Communist Party and renounced her membership only in 1968 and somebody who radically revised her visions. She's somebody who would fit in the model of somebody who completely moved away from those visions. Um, the Polish state hates Olga Tokarczuk. She's, she's like enemy number one among literature for her anti-nationalist um, Sentiment. Alexevich also mourns the loss of certain ideals of communality. You know, not communism, but communality. She her her prose is about individuals. You know, she's always breaking things up into individual little narratives. But individuals. Um, it's clear both in her book about Chernobyl and the miniseries, if you're into depressing and excellent miniseries, um, that she laments the loss of the kind of idea that, of course, it's my job to sacrifice myself. And I think Grossman, I don't know if this fits with what you were saying or not, that Grossman, also the idea of a collective, not even necessarily ideologically motivated, but that you have a community for which it is worthwhile to make even the ultimate sacrifice. Um,
0: Right. Yeah, that's very good. Um, So let's, let's transition a little bit. I mean, we've already naturally wandered into uh, this this part of um, the discussion I wanted to get to but let's just talk um, in a bit more concrete terms about once once you are an artist who decides that that you can't bear to to participate in the collective project of one of these um, societies, how have different artists um, sought to kind of exempt themselves from it and, And to evade it, Jim, you want to start us off on on that question?
4: Well, uh, some of the answer is is uh, already been mentioned. Um, Luck. If you're if you're Solzhenitsyn, um, who by the way spent his early career, I suppose, like Grossman, writing a uh, a book about the Great Russian Revolution. And at some point, the Great Russian Revolution turned out to be a lousy idea instead of a good idea. So, um, uh, you know, uh, the Red Wheel. But uh, so, so, Solzhenitsyn was lucky in that uh, that he wrote one day in the one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich and uh, Khrushchev used it to uh, get rid of Stalinists on the Politburo and in, in the Communist Party. And I think this. Uh, this propels Solzhenitsyn to a kind of fame that people have talked about. It's then very difficult uh, to kill a guy or, or you should just kill him with uh, you know, poison like they tried to with ricin. So uh, that's one mechanism uh, is luck, that you're famous. You have to be a good writer to be famous too. I think uh, a second thing is to, write what, uh, is to write in such a way that you don't get caught uh writing and certainly the i like the part about the uh chinese poets who write in such a way that nobody can figure out what they're up to uh you know there uh, if i think there's a school of thought in ancient chinese the esoteric school and uh, certainly if you look at um uh, the attempt by writers not to confront the state directly one day in the life of ivan nisevich is an example of that i mean it doesn't really castigate the state it just castigates the prison system um, sozhenitsyn even tried to change uh, the first circle although it, it was such an indictment of the Communist party it didn't work very well to try to tame it down but if we if we go on to look at, at the period in which uh, writers were not so fearful that is of their lives but more fearful of losing their job or not getting their kids into university uh, late totalitarian Post totalitarianism, which is still totalitarianism, but of a different sort. Um, the the best way to do it is to write in such a way that everything has more than one meaning, or the meaning is so difficult to understand um, that that uh, uh, that 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 you can likely get off the hook by saying. This is is just an absurd play about speech, you know, the garden party or something like that. And uh, although uh, the the state might not like them, but not you're not directly confronting the state. You're just talking about, you know, how bureaucracies are weird. So uh, those I think are two methods that people used to uh, to get around the state and uh, uh, just to. Uh, solidify what's been said. I, I saw the Chinese in, at uh, when they came to the conference on Solzhenitsyn that uh, was put on at the Solzhenitsyn Center, and the Chinese were saying, "Oh yes, we love the Red Wheel." And uh, people raised their hand to the, the the commentator, the scholar who was talking about the Red Wheel. They said, "Well, isn't isn't this going to get you in trouble with the Communist Party?" And the answer was, "How could a work written." Uh, about an incident in 1917 threatened the great communist party of China, which I thought was really good, and uh, how could any work of literature. Uh, So this is the way you can you can say something that you want to say, but not say it outright. Just, I think just, that tactic was used
0: Jim I, I just just for our audience I just wanted to be explicit that you are you were alluding to to many of the of the plays of, of Vaclav Havel who if you if you know a little bit about the system you can glean that he's he's poking at it and, and and prodding it but you know you don't find the words communist Party anywhere in the in the plays and he's he's quite he's quite uh, careful in how he goes about um, Criticizing it, at least in the guise of his plays, a lot of lots of his essays, he's he's very upfront to
4: <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, but he liked he was a playwright and he wanted his plays to get produced. And I know the leading I know the leading political scientist in the Czechoslovakia, and he told me that they invited Havel lots of times to come to meetings about politics, and he said, "No, I'm too busy reading Martin Heidegger." You know, so if if anybody's ever tried to understand Heidegger's relationship with politics, good luck. So. <laughs> Perry, you want
0: to weigh in on on any of these questions we've we've been talking about?
3: Uh, am I unmuted? Yeah, uh, you're good. Yeah. Sure. What what Jim and Flag have both said about playing cat and mouse with the authorities in order to get a meaning across without seeming to is very common in China ever since the 1950s. And I could give a lot of examples of that. I'd note, though, that in the writing of foggy messages, for example, in the foggy poetry I referred to, sometimes there aren't hidden meanings. Sometimes the statement is by the writer is just, I am going to express myself uh, apolitically, as it were, without political motive and without anything except the normal artist's desire to to express and that gets read as political dissidents by paranoid authorities that are convinced there must be something uh, concretely subversive in them another uh technique that's been used in china especially by uh, zhang xianliang who wrote in the early 80s And wrote, I'm convinced, although he won't say so, uh, in conscious imitation of Solzhenitsyn, one day in the life of Ian Denisevich and others. He wrote a book that's been translated, you can read it in English, called Grass Soup, I'll uh, show it to you here. And I'll also show you one page, because it illustrates my point. You can see here, on this side, that is, for you, what is it? the left hand side there's just one line that says paul dirt clods picked through greens wrote elegy shine on christmas crimson rays these are words that he wrote in a labor camp when he was on the verge of starvation and he wrote it in part so that he would i'm sorry the stupid telephone i really apologize for that interruption
4: uh, that was the Chinese Communist Party They're thereafter.
3: Yeah, probably tipping in on me. He, he said he had to write in order to maintain his sanity. And I think of another dissident who was in solitary confinement for five years, a man named Yu Mao, Yu Mao Cheng, who uh, recited classical poetry because he had no pen, he had no paper, he had no texts. He had in his mind words that he could uh, recite to himself in order to maintain his sanity. Well, Zhang Xianlang is doing that with these cryptic notes, but then after Mao dies and he gets out and can write it, he writes this long exposition, four or five pages of what he meant by these cryptic notes which reminded him of the deeper thoughts that he wanted to express. Uh, His last note here is wrote an elegy called Shine on Crimson Rays. And he wrote poetry in prison that he later called finding a body to pour my soul into. That is, he would see a beautiful sunset or notice a an attractive female in uh, prisoner and have emotional thoughts, and then write about Chairman Mao and shining crimson rays or something else that is on the surface politically acceptable, although in his heart and later as he explains, it was inspiration at a very different level.
0: That's great. Um... Well, let's, um, now I kind of want to move away from the kind of the dialectic uh, question of the relationship between the state and these artists um, and kind of shift our, our discussion a little bit. Uh, Jacob, I'll, I'll put this question to you first and then other other people can, can weigh in. Um, you know, the French philosopher Pierre Menant, he, he has this essay called The Return of, of Political Philosophy, where he notes that the most powerful descriptions or indictments of totalitarian regimes have come in the form of literature right not not from political scientists or philosophers but but uh, mostly from from fiction writers and so i wanted to know if you agree with that assessment and and if yes why do you think that's the case
2: yeah no i, I so i think we should begin by considering what happened to the word under under communism right so you get this um, coldly calculated language of state. Um, um, books and articles are made to order, right? And they um, communicate um, officially approved attitudes and lessons. Um, I would say that the that the concept of authorship in the proper sense uh, disappears, and this this produces certain kinds of absurdities, right? So. Um, there's a, a character in Life and Fate who is awarded the Stalin prize uh, for an article um, that he only reads after he's received the prize and after it's been public. Um, uh, and also, you know, Modelstam informs us that um, uh, the practice of spying and writing reports uh, on others was so prevalent among the intelligentsia that it became known simply as to write, right? So what does literature do? Um, I would say it reclaims the word for human purposes. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, it does describe life under totalitarianism, and that does contain a powerful element of indictment. But what literature does, it it achieves more than indictment because indictment is purely negative. Um, Poetry and novels are um, restorative, you know, they heal. What, what's been uh, what's been broken, um, so in Soviet literature, the sort of pitiless abstraction of the state is often represented by what Grossman calls the uh, the frozen abyss or the cruel sky of ice and fire, right? Um, uh, and um, there's no comfort or peace to be found in that frozen abyss. Uh, this is, by the way, the, the Soviet version of um, Aristophanes' Cloud Cuckoo Land. We can go all the way back to Aristophanes' Birds to sort of see where this kind of thinking originates. Um, but what poetry achieves, I think, is really exemplified in a, in a four-line poem by Osip Modelstam that he, that he composed, didn't write because he wasn't writing any poetry, Now He composed. Uh, in Voronezh, where he was in exile, this is 1937, uh, the year before his death. As the meteorite from the heavens wakes the earth somewhere, the exiled line fell to the ground, not knowing its father. What is implacable is a godsend for the creator. It couldn't be anything else. No one judges it, So here we see that, you know, Mandelstam's poetry, it's not at home in the sky, right? It's drawn to, it's attracted to the earth. Um, and his poetry wakes the earth, it's, it's enlivening. Um, and it, it builds up, it's solid and it's concrete. This is sort of one of the ideas of Acmeism, which is the school that he belonged to. Um, I would say that um, the novels and literary experiments and memoirs of, for example, Vasily Grossman, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Nadezhda Mandelstam um, also are upbuilding, right, but in a different way. Um, they certainly give us the aggregate experience of the masses uh, who are being moved about by these tremendous social forces unleashed by communism. Um, and you might call that sort of the level of um, uh, totalitarian social physics, right? The level of fate, but they also give us life and life unfolds uh, in in the novels and literary experiments and memoirs of the authors I mentioned. Um, on the level of individuals who are placed in limit conditions, right? Who are um in the camps or being interrogated or hauled into court or you know living in exile, right? And what happens uh under those conditions is that the pressure of the state, the weight of the state that Stalin famously referred to, right? How much does the Soviet Union weigh? Um, crushes some people completely, right? So you can think of sort of the yaga right? The this the Soviet equivalent of the Muslim manner in the Nazi camps. They're just turned to dust and crushed. Many, many other people are rendered, their souls are kind of rendered small and cold, right? And they add their weight uh, to the Soviet state. Um, But there's another kind of hardening that takes place among very, very few, for example, Osip Mandelstam, and that is that they become sort of invincible, right? Um, In fact, uh, there's an essay called On the Nature of the Word in 1922, where uh, Mandelstam writes, the sacred character of poetry arises out of the conviction that man is harder than Everything else in the world. But these situations also produce a kind of soul sifting, right or a kind of moral threshing. The husk breaks open, the chaff blows away and all that's left is this, is this kernel of the sort of heart of the person. Um, and, and, and what's there in this kernel might be love, it might be spontaneous kindness. The character of Ikonnikov in Life and Fate says, you know, in any case, it's as powerless as the dew; it's going to die like a a, a freshwater fish in saltwater ocean. But um, nonetheless, it's it's life giving, right? Another thing that happens when 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 someone like Grossman or Solzhenitsyn puts the state in contact with reality is that the state is is and its functionaries are just shown to be, you know, chaff; they just kind of blow away. There's a wonderful. Scene in Life and Fate where a fellow who's a party member, he's got N- NKVD connections and he's appointed a general. And to his great misfortune, he's actually put briefly in command at Stalingrad. And he's terrified because he realizes, you know, I there's no use like, you know, telling the Germans that, you know, I'm going to relieve them of their posts or I'm going to, you know, um, <clears throat> report them as uh, uh, conspiring with enemies of the state or something like this, right? The bureaucracy is just useless. Um, but To give voice to the truth of existence, to to stake the claim of life, I think, is the ethical imperative of literature that we see in these Soviet poets and authors. Um, And by the way, it's a a very deep human need. There's a wonderful passage in um, uh, Primo Levi's memoir of Auschwitz, if this is a man, and he talks about encountering a storyteller in the barracks, a Yiddish rhapsodist, right? Who sings, who sings the story of the lager of the camps in minute detail. Right? And it's also not, incidentally, just a human need, a human imperative to sort of create this music. Uh, Grossmann um, talks about soldiers who all of a sudden think they're under fire, right? and they're ducking. They don't know where the fire is coming from. But what it is, is starlings flying over their heads, who are making the sound of bullets. They're imitating bullets. Right? Or, um, for example, um, uh, This actually reminds me of um, a passage in Aharon Oppelfeld's wonderful memoir, The Story of a Life. He's run away from a Nazi camp at the age of 10 and he's hiding in the forest. And he said, and I have no reason to doubt him, that he could tell what peasant cottage to approach, right? Or to stay away from by the sound of the birds, by the sound of the birds. So, um, you know, I guess I would say in conclusion that the, the, the music of the human word, right? It it rings a meaning from what would otherwise be meaningless suffering. It it saves lives, indeed. In this Primo Levi uh, decides I'm going to teach Italian to my friends. He's got a little bit of free time, and he starts reciting the 26th canto of Dante's Inferno, and he starts pulling on this and saying, "Well, I have to explain who Virgil is, and who Dante is, and what the Renaissance," you know? and it gives him this incredible nourishment, this incredible jolt of vitality right there in the death camp where people don't talk about Dante. well see, monostom Carried Dante's Divine Comedy in his pocket, because the authors all used to have a book with them in case they were imprisoned, that they could have with them. Um, and finally, Nadezhda Mandelstam whose two memoirs, um, Hope Against Hope, and by the way, Hope is a play on her name. Nadezhda, I think it's what, the, Nadyasta, I could ask Claire, right? Something like this. Um, uh, and then Hope Abandoned. Uh, she, I think she survived because her task was to commit Osip Mandelstam's poetry to memory, she and her friend Anna Akhmatova would recite, you know, every night they would they would recite this. And so she internalized this poetry that couldn't be written down for 20, 30 years. She internalized it. And I think that made her the writer she is. And this was her meaning, right? To preserve this human word. So
0: the the literature on, on totalitarianism, I think, Jacob, you've made a, a wonderful case uh, in terms of why this now pretty vast literature uh, remains, um, these works remain works that people want to read because they don't just represent, you know, the, the crushing reality of, of the societies these people inhabited, but they, um, they express a certain kind of, of hope and a certain kind of triumph in different, in various ways, in different, in different contexts. And I think that's, that's an important reason why this, this type of literature has has endured. Um, others want to weigh in on, on this question of the relationship between yeah, literature that we said, and what it tells
4: us. Yeah, Jim. Wonderful explanation. I'd just like to maybe add a little bit, which is, you know, these uh, modern theories like Mar- Marxism uh, and Nazism, uh, all the social forces are beyond individual control. There, you know there are things that are occurring in society and we're sort of pawns to these great historical motions especially in marxism but also in 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 nazism and many of these artists return the focus of attention to individuals to to actual human beings which of course is where all of us really live and and by doing that they they restate the case for a kind of understanding of our lives and the meaning of our lives, which can't be just what the social structure says, because we have bills to pay and we have fears and we have hopes uh, and we make mistakes, uh, back to the complexity that was mentioned by Claire. So uh, the art recaptures the real place where we live, where these theories are just uh, sort of abstractions.
0: Perry or Claire? Claire, go ahead.
1: One thing I think that a lot of these people, including someone like Solzhenitsyn, including like someone even like Akhmatova, are doing is recognizing or Alexievich um, a partial truth. They're taking communism's totalizing truths and returning them into partial truths. The the desire for community, uh, the speaking for others as well as for oneself people have talked about Requiem as, in a way, the true exemplar of socialist realism in the sense that it it negotiates constantly between the we and the I, and the point is never the I in isolation. The point is the I's experience evolving into um, what she does in the last passages of that incredible poem, is talk about, I've turned this into a ritual. I hope everybody, when they remember me, they don't remember me as an image of Niobe, you know, weeping tears over her own child, but as that I am the monument to the entire nation, that my sufferings were are simply an articulation of what this mass suffering was about. At the same time, so she's constantly going back and forth between individual and collective experience. Her friend Lydia Chukovska writes a novella at the same time called Sefie Betrovna, which is also fantastic, and says in effect, what that story is limited third person, a woman who has bought the whole thing, Klein and Sinker. She's the Soviet equivalent of a pink collar worker. Her son is like the model socialist realist son. He gets caught up in Stalin's terror. And the story is really about her. What is the, the, the psychoanalytic turn? About the unthought known she knows what's happened to her perfect ideal model socialist realist son but she can't allow it to consciousness because her storyline is a storyline of the socialist realist reality she's kind of saying to akhmantov you're forgetting not everybody in the crowd was against it some of them never accepted the truth that you're saying you know we know we're the the truth telling victims some of the victims refuse to acknowledge what happened to their own child. So telling these multiple truths in multiple genres um, that acknowledge a partial truth um, and um, restore it to its proper sort of individual place.
0: That's very nice. How about you, Perry? Any any, um, examples from the kind of the Chinese context?
3: Uh, I agree with everything my fellow panelists have said. To go back to the Flagg's original question of why uh, fiction or storytelling might be more powerful than perorations from historians and social scientists, uh, I'm in the literature field. And I would say that the biggest reason why, and I agree with that generalization, that novels do hit harder and deeper, The biggest difference is that when a social scientist or a historian is talking to a reader, it's basically from a higher position to a subordinate position. Here I am the expert telling you what to think because here's the truth, and I mean well. A novel, a good novel, has the reader decide what the moral conclusions ought to be, and when it's generated from inside the reader, it's more powerful than when it's accepted from an authority from outside. I will give an example here, not from Chinese, but from uh, Solzhenitsyn's Ivan Denisovich, because we've all read it. Uh, this few lines, uh, Solzhenitsyn's, that novel is so brilliant because it's not flamboyant. It doesn't tell you conclusions. It gets you in the reader into the texture of daily life so that you feel what it The truth is, consider these lines. Kopchik, the young inmate, will do well. Give him another three years, he has still to grow up. He'll become nothing less than a bread cutter. He's fated for it. Such simple language, but look at the horror that it's saying, this young man, if he does well, for three years, will actually get to the level of bread cutter, and it's his fate. (laughs) Very simple language, but terrifying in its meaning when you absorb it. That kind of writing uh, is more effective than anything a social scientist or historian can do. I I won't say any, some brilliant writers among historians, but that's why I think that novels really do get deeper into the trauma than other kinds of writing can.
0: That's great. Well, um, unless someone else wants to, to jump in, thought of something they hadn't mentioned before, there, there are a few questions that, that we could get to from our audience. Um, one, one question is about brutalist architecture and uh, just this, this question of architecture being an example uh, of the arts. Do we consider architecture to be an extension of the arts for the purposes of the of the conversation, and and what's the what's the purpose of brutalist architecture, and, and how does one explain its brutalist architectures? This questioner asked the the prevalence in non-communist societies.
4: Uh, so I I can't resist. I I was living in Prague, and I was second very very nice woman to her, uh, Panilak, uh, you know, which is square and tall and white. And can, looks like every other, and there's no stores were allowed at the at the street level because that you know the, the Czech government couldn't control the communist Czech government couldn't control them. And I I left there and I went to see and I I left from seeing whether I wanted to rent this apartment to a friend of mine, uh, a woman named Hrmalkova, who who is a spokesperson for Charter Seventy Seven. And, uh, and she said, James, uh, you, you can't live there. It will empty your soul. Uh, that's my one. And she was right, by the way. That's my one experience, personal experience with Panel Acts. I, I don't have any more general comment, but that was my view of them.
0: Anyone else want to weigh in on the, the architecture question? Claire?
1: Well, I, I'm not gonna say anything about brutalism, except that I hate it. The Northwestern library is brutalist, which means it's essentially unusable. Um, it's it's like a washing machine agitator, you know, you can't ever figure out where you're going in and where you're going out. It's, but you know, architecture was very much part of the Stalinist project. You know, his specialty was what was called Stalinist, or informally Stalinist wedding cake or Stalinist Gothic. Um, where it had socialist realist sort of murals all the way around. Um, and then these ridiculous Gothic towers on top. And the, the standard joke in Warsaw is the gift to the Polish people after they had the great joy of being liberated by Joseph Stalin was the um, Palace of Culture in the center of Moscow and the, the, uh, the center, excuse me, of Warsaw. And it has all the panels of the brawny guys. Incidentally, you can see those in American art of the 30s, too. It it is like an American art movement. The the emblem for the Michigan State Spartans could just come straight off of the um, Palace of Culture. Um, But the the, the standard joke was, where's the best view in Warsaw? It's from the Palace of Culture, because then you don't have to look at the Palace of Culture. It's, des- it's imperial art. It's designed, it's imperial architecture. It's designed to absolutely dominate the skyline and put all older architecture forms in its shadow. Um, and it's ugly for good measure.
3: The same phenomenon is visible in China, but with the added fact that the juxtaposition of the new, uh, rectangular Leninist architecture with the traditional Chinese architecture that's very different of course is super clear and gradually over the decades from the 50s and 60s and 70s one style just ate up the other until the traditional architecture in cities like Beijing and uh, Xi'an are gone uh, until finally in recent decades the the government has discovered that, for tourism and other reasons, it's good to bring back faux uh, original type of architecture, which, in a sense, is even more ugly because, you know, it's faux.
0: Another question stems from um, our um, comment, I guess, primarily from from Claire and Jim, if memory serves, about uh, some of these works of literature um, being ambiguous uh, in, in terms of, um, of their commentary on, on the contemporary life and having p- multiple possible meanings. Um, this questioner asks uh, for particular examples, maybe from the, from the later Soviet period of works um, that would fall into this category of works that, that would, would um, admit of multiple interpretations. Uh, so anyone. So anyone? I could
4: try at least one that we talked about. Yeah, go ahead, right? Jim. Um, and it follows along with something that's already been said uh, about a work of art, which is Václav Havel's trilogy, um, and one of them is named Audience. And uh, if you read Audience, uh, this little play, you really don't know what the point is because the main character Vanyek uh seems at first not to say anything and not to do anything and to be very polite and and his interlocutor who's uh, uh his boss tries to get him to spy on himself tries to get him to write uh, a, a a he's a writer <laughs> uh, tries to get vanyuk to, to write something to the sdb this the secret police and uh, for most of the play we see Vanyak just being polite, nice, and not saying anything and not doing anything. But the foreman, the his boss, implores him because poor, the poor foreman doesn't have any international reputation, as the character Vanyak and of course the real Vaslav Havel did. And at the end, it seems that Vanyak does write a report on himself to the secret police. So what is the what is the moral teaching of that? Uh, it's ambiguous enough that. It might, although it never really did quite pass muster with the Soviet, with the KGB authorities, the SDB authorities, but uh, but it it's ambiguous enough that it's not against the state, uh, and it shows the particular that people are caught in situations in a totalitarian country, really beyond their control, and they sometimes have to go along uh, with the with the system. Uh, that that would be a good place to start. Because, by the way, because they're comprehensible.
0: Yeah, I'll direct uh, Jim and I tape, tape an episode on those three Hobble plays of, of the podcast. So you can find that on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And Jim and I disagree about the, uh, the interpretation of the, that final scene. So you'll see the ambiguity come out, uh, Perry. Uh,
3: let me give you a very short example of ambiguous language Uh, in response to this question. This is a poem written in the late 1970s. It's one of those foggy poems called Feeling by Gu Cheng. Eight lines. The sky is gray, the road is gray, the building is gray, the rain is gray. In this blanket of dead gray, two children walk by, one bright red, one light green, Okay, so what does children mean? Red, of course, is the color of communism, but red in traditional China is for felicity of all different kinds, weddings and so on, it's happiness. It's a, so what does it mean? And what does the light green child mean? Light green, at this time in China anyway, clearly referred to the new growth of a plant that's light green. So ambiguity, all over the place.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jake. And you know, these regimes don't like ambiguity very much because um, it presupposes um, a certain agency on the part of the reader or the hearer, right? I mean, you have to, they're, they're hidden meanings and you have to kind of ferret them out. Um, but I also think we should be reminded, you know, when I was, um, uh, I, we, our, we had a relationship with, the University of Bucharest uh, in the 1990s. And I would go over there and they'd come speak uh, at my school. And I was told by one of them that um, uh, by one of the professors that um, under the Ceausescu regime, uh, you you couldn't refer to the works of Karl Popper, right, because he wrote The Open Society and Its Enemies, which was a big denunciation of fascism and totalitarianism. so what people would do is somewhere in the middle of the book where the censors weren't reading, they would insert a reference to Karl Popper. and this was a kind of hidden clue, right that you're you're on the side of the opponents of the regime. But I'm thinking there's what I wanted to say is there there's a there's a certain use of indirection even in somebody like Grossmann and it's very, very early in his book Life and Fate. it's actually in the second chapter. Um, and he he mentions that the, the beginning of the book is set in a Nazi camp and he mentions, Four supposed innovations of the National Socialists. I keep saying this was an innovation of National Socialist, this was an innovation. Um, and the innovations were imprisonment for anticipated crimes, imprisonment of POWs in concentration or death camps, putting criminals in charge of political prisoners, and imprisonment of unpatriotic people who lived abroad. And if I'm not mistaken, those were all things that the USSR had already done. So there's a kind of, cl- if, if I'm right, there's a kind of clue there, right, which is, uh, pay attention to this book because I'm going to be using certain techniques that will put you on your guard and make you think about what it is that I'm trying to say. Right, hmm. Claire, you want to weigh in on this? Uh,
1: there's a recent book called The House of Government by the, the historian Yuri Stioskin making an argument which is compelling up to a point that this very project of world literature and translation, that these the classics, as you know, cherry picked by the state, should be widely available to uh, Soviet readers, and also texts from whatever Kyrgyzstan, um, Uzbekistan, that the, they should be translated. That this should be a multilingual heritage. He makes the case that being exposed to these classics of Western culture, and not only Western culture in and of itself was dangerous because no matter what you wrote in the introduction, the texts themselves convey multiple meanings and that you can say a 19th century novel is criticizing French bourgeois society and see the same flaws at work in your own the regime around you. You can see poverty is on the streets in Leningrad or Moscow, not just in um, 19th century Paris, whatever you can use the text against the reality around you. Now, I don't think Sliofskin finally says sort of that they got the right reading list so that they could finally help explode the state. I think that's overdoing it. That's kind of Joseph Brodsky's thing. You give the right reading list to a dictator, he'll soften up. Um, I think Lenin is a perfect case in point for that not working. Um, But the other thing I was gonna say, a place in in late Soviet period where ambiguity was made to work in Polish society is in the films of Andrzej Wajda. And what mm-hmm. Vida did, because that, that's a collaborative form, you need state funding, you can't do it on your own. You can't write the poem in your for your desk drawer or whatever. He started realizing what things a censor can't get. So in a film like Ashes and Diamonds, which is based on a novel that came out in the Stalin era and got a prize, um, he tapers down the story And his casting tells a different story than the original novel. He casts a young actor whose name I know perfectly well, but can't remember at the moment, who had actually watched Rebel Without a Cause. The two of them had watched Rebel Without a Cause. This actor just channeled James Dean. And the minute you did that, the character who was supposed to show um, that pre-war Polish life was a dead end, becomes absolutely the most vital figure in the film because he's doing method acting in a film full of people doing conventional acting. And Vita picked up on all these ways that a censor is not a good enough critic to catch everything that you put into the film. You can hand them the script, but it's how the actor reads the line that's gonna change the meaning of the text and the visual imagery as well.
0: Yeah, that's uh, Andre Vida. So it's for our listeners, it's W-A-J-D-A. Great, great director. Many, many films. Um, you could just find them on IMDb or Wikipedia. You'll get a long, long list of wonderful, wonderful films. Many made, as, as Claire said, during um, during communist times. And then he continued to make films until I think three, three years ago, 2018, was his last last movie, I think. Um we have a, we have a few more minutes. I thought we might end, uh, by, um, just, just asking each of you to, to, uh, if you had to kind of recommend your, your favorite, uh, work of, of literature on, on totalitarianism, what, what that is, and then maybe a separate question. This could be the same one, but maybe a work of literature that, that you would recommend to introduce young people, especially students into this, um, this kind of literature so maybe that's the you have the same work for both but um uh jim you want to start
4: uh well i wasn't really ready to start Uh, so oh um but that's all right uh so for young people one day in the life of ivan denisevich is easy to read um it it uh, creates a kind of a life that most americans wouldn't understand about and it, it it seems to me for young people it's easy to see what's going on but hard to understand so it might produce in them a desire to go further and say how did this occur? Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I as uh, flag knows I love Václav Havel because I like his sense of humor but I guess if I had to pick my favorite uh, would would be the first circle exactly because it is an effort to be as complex as Dante, although that's impossible, but to present different notions about the meaning and purpose of life in different characters, uh, all of them which seem to be sensible in some way or other, uh, and devotion to what? um, And of course, even devotion to the Socratic way of life is presented. So I guess that's that would be my favorite. It's not easy to read, however.
0: So Solzhenitsyn's in the first circle. Uh, how about you, Jake?
2: Well, I have to agree with the recommendation of One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich um, for young people and not just for young people. Um, there's also, by the way, a very good film um, made uh, in the United States, I think. Or maybe Britain, um, uh, which I saw when I was a kid. And I remember my brother asking, or my father took us to the film and we came out. My father said, Why was it in color? You know, there weren't any colors. And my brother is very smart, said, That's exactly why it was in color (laughs) to show you (laughs) that there weren't any colors. Um, But I guess if I had to represent, I mean, look, there are many great things. Nadesh Mandelsam, I mentioned Hope Against Hope and Hope Abandoned. I think those books have probably been a bit neglected and deserve careful study. But if I had to pick one, and also the Gulag Archipelago, but if I had to pick one book, it would be Life and Fate, Growth, uh, Grothman's Life and Fate. I know you're a big fan, Flag. I know you've taught it a number of times. Um, it's, uh, it's quite spectacular, and I'm eager to read. Now, uh, I think uh, New York Review Books has come out with a new translation of um, Stalingrad. Uh, and I heard Robert Chandler talking about it recently on a podcast. Um, uh, and Perry, you uh, had wondered what I meant by uh, no lice realism. That's a this was Chandler saying that when Grossman was writing Stalingrad, right, the censors were all over it. So he had a scene where he he said that this particular uh, soldier had more lice than anyone else in the unit, and the censors got rid of that. And then on a later go through, they allowed. Him to say that uh this uh this particular soldier was the only one in the unit with lice, right? So the Soviets didn't like lice. Anyway, that's my all
0: right. So life and fate and in the first circle. How about you, Claire?
1: Oh gosh, I I'm gonna have to pick a non needs and just to balance the picture here a <laughs> bit. I'm gonna make a couple of recommendations. Um one, somebody who I think is really She's been in print in English now for what 70 80 years. She's still alive, in fact, on the Russian stage. Um, Her work has been presented as Evgenia Ginsburg as a counterbalance to Solzhenitsyn, in a way, because it's, it's the students in the olden days when students were used to books that were longer than 200 pages they would get so caught up it's it's a coming of age novel about coming a coming of age memoir in fact staged in a way as a kind of a novel of the re-education of a committed communist young woman someone who'd been teaching in the system educated through the system believed in the system entirely and it also This is what I told them. You shouldn't have to go through a camp to get this. It also shows the values of a humanist liberal arts education spectacularly. She's read everything. She's learned languages. She's read history. And she uses those things in an unassuming way. All the way through the book, she's saying, I didn't get this, but I learned this from the ignorant girl who came from a province who told me about what life was really like over there. She's introduced to a multiplicity of human Types and backgrounds through her experience in prison, because that's where all the multiplicity is being thrown, all the diverse political opinions, ethnicities, and so forth, religious beliefs. And she can figure things out through this magnificent education that she'd acquired but not known how to use before getting into the camps. So and
0: what's the what's the title of the Ginsburg it's, book? In player? English,
1: it's called Into the Whirlwind. Into and the then the, 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 the second volume is Within the Whirlwind. It's been imprinted in, in English since I think 1968 and it's fantastic. It's, I find it a page turner. I have kind of weird taste in page turners but I think this one is it.
0: All right, Perry, you're up. How about you?
1: I'm a bit startled and
3: it's partly my fault that nobody today has mentioned George Orwell yet. I think uh, Animal Farm and 1984 are good ways to start youngsters to imagine what this totalitarian conception is like. Uh, Jim is a fan of Václav Havel and so am I, and I would put power of the Powerless on a, a list. It gets to the heart of things. For China, I'm not I'm embarrassed a bit as a China fan that I can't name a... Chinese writer who really gets as deep. This Zhang Xianliang that I just mentioned, the grass soup is, is pretty good, but it doesn't get as deep as, as Denisevich goes. Uh, for people commenting on China, I would highly recommend Simon Leys, L-E-Y-S, who wrote essays. He didn't write long works, but they're collected in, in books. The first one was called Chinese shadows another was the burning forest but you can google lays in any of his essays he's just brilliant he's a, a Belgian whose name was originally Pierre Rickman's Simon lays is his pen name but that's really good
0: well thank you to uh, to Claire uh, Jake Jim, and Perry for for doing this it's been a great event uh, thanks to the victims of communism Memorial Foundation and to the Zephyr Institute for, for co-sponsoring, and I hope you all uh, learned a few things about totalitarianism and, and art and literature, and thanks, thanks for being here. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R rorg org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes. And message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the E-I-Pod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest.